Father, we have corporately gathered to feast on your word. Guard our minds from wandering as we study. Give us discipline of mind. Help us to live in this moment. To receive these words as water to parched lips. As food to growling stomachs. Help this exposition to land on us. We are confused sheep. Wondering why things are happening the way they are happening. We are herding sheep. We need you, our great shepherd, to pick us up and mend the wounds. We are stubborn sheep, wanting to go our own way. Bring the rod of correction through the text today. We are on the edge of our seats, ready to receive your good word, Lord. If we do not encounter you in the text this day, we may collapse under the load. We are desperate people with desperate needs and desperate longings to hear from you. We go to the book now with expectation. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We are six sermons in to our verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians. For the first chapter and a half, Paul's been tearing his hair out over problems in the church. Now he gives the church one of the most comforting, reassuring passages you've ever read. It's comforting and reassuring, but it's not easy. It's very technical, especially at the beginning. And I'm going to need you to dive deep with me. We're going to come up for air. I'm not going to let you drown. But I need you to take a long, deep breath before jumping in because the passage starts out technical. You can handle it. You're used to it around here. You didn't come to this church to stay surface. You came to dive deep. And so we are going into the depths. Here's what I have for you. The wisdom of God and the spirit of God. The wisdom of God and the spirit of God. Paul, a Middle Eastern guy who lived in the first century, formerly a hater of Christ, now a follower of Christ, preached the the glorious gospel of Christ and started a church in Corinth, a city known for its philosophical wisdom. It was the city of wisdom. For three to five years, this church has operated in the city of wisdom. And it's not been easy. Paul gives them instructions on how to live out this glorious gospel in the city of wisdom. And here's how he approaches the subject. He lays out two contrasts. The first contrast, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. That's chapter 2, verses 6 through 10a. The second contrast, the spirit of the world versus the spirit of God. That's chapter 2, verse 10b through verse 16. The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. The spirit of the world versus the spirit of God. Both distinctions are those who know Christ and those who do not. Those who do not know Christ drink in the wisdom of the world. Those who do know Christ drink in the wisdom of God. Those who do not know Christ are not spiritless. They have the spirit of the world. But those who do know Christ have the spirit of God. 
So in verses 6 through 10, we have wisdomology. In verses 10 through 16, we have pneumatology. Wisdomology, I just made that word up, it's, it's the study of wisdom. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Two great systematics in which we will dive deep. As we go through the text, I will drop some wisdom truths and some spirit truths. This is a challenging text. I'm not going to deny that. I don't want to make this text more simplistic than it is. I don't want to bottom shelf it if it's not bottom shelf. From the jump, we are going to dive into the deep end. We're going to come back up for air at the end, and I will leave you with some practical applications and explanations on why you needed the depth in this text. So let's just cannonball into the deep end. Verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Let's stop here. Let's, uh, let's begin and work to identify some groups. Who are the mature? Who are the we? The mature is referring to believers. Not just mature believers, but all believers. Chrysostom, Luther, Calvin, all your notable theologians held to this. Paul is not separating mature and immature believers. He will do that later in the book, but not here. All Christians, the people who are genuinely saved, are the mature. Now, who are the we? In verse 1 of this chapter, Paul uses the first person personal pronoun, I. And then when we arrive here in verse 6, he switches to the first person plural pronoun, we. This is not the royal we. This is not speaking about everyone. This is speaking about Paul and the other apostolic teachers. The revelation that Paul and the apostles received from God, they are passing on to the church. The we's can rightly be applied to them. So, Paul and the apostles impart to all Christians in Corinth what? What are they imparting? Verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. Now, here's a, here's a helpful listening tip. I'm going to talk about the wisdom they impart before I define the wisdom they impart. Paul is in the middle of his extended attack on the wisdom of the world. And up until this point in the book, Paul has been rather hard on wisdom. But it is here that he introduces another wisdom, the wisdom of God. Paul's not down on this wisdom. He's all for this wisdom. He spends the next few verses differentiating between the two types of wisdom. The wisdom of this age is immature and changeable. The wisdom of God is mature and without change. The wisdom of the world originated from hell. The wisdom of God originates from heaven. There is a huge gap between Christian and non-Christian thinking. The gulf between the two is immense. It's a wide chasm. We are about to see a contrast between those who receive God's wisdom and those who do not. The mature, the Christians, are contrasted with the rulers of this age. Two groups. The mature of this age and the rulers of this age. The rulers of this age have their eyes installed backward. They can't see the wisdom of God. Sin affects their spiritual vision. Now, who are the rulers of this age? 
where in the immediate context, more specifically, they are Caesar, Caiaphas, Pilate, the Jewish high priest, the Roman authorities. More generally, they are all non-believers, all non-Christians. The real contrast is between the believer and the non-believer. That's what's happening here. They will pass away because they reject God's wisdom. Verse 7. But we impart, a wisdom, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. This wisdom is secret or a mystery. The Greek word mysterion is translated mystery in other places in the Bible. Why is the wisdom of God a secret? Why is it a full-blown mystery? In fact, you're wondering by now what this wisdom of God is and why I haven't defined it for you yet. The word mysterion, secret, wisdom, occurs 27 times in the New Testament. You have all those mystery parables Jesus told. The wisdom of God is, is not a mystery like the Sherlock Holmes mystery. This word is always referring to something that was not known in the past, but is now revealed. It was hidden in the Old Testament, but it's made crystal clear in the New Testament. Eternal wisdom from God, formerly hidden, but now revealed. What is the secret hidden wisdom of God? Paul says it over and over in this book, but we need constant rehashing. It is the gospel. Hidden from the world until it was revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel hidden, now the gospel revealed. Paul gave the church at Corinth the gospel. He led a gospel-centered ministry in Corinth. The point of saying that this gospel was hidden is to point out that although a lot of the Old Testament points to Christ, much of it was in veiled terms, in types, in shadows, structures of thought, it was obscure. It's now revealed. True wisdom is the gospel. It's Christ's atoning death on the cross. The gospel is not a riddle. It is a person. The mystery of salvation is the person of Christ. Two times in chapter 1, Christ is the wisdom of God. All that wisdom wrapped up in a person. It's now an open secret. How did it become an open secret? Because God has revealed it. The secret was God's redemptive purposes for humankind. This wisdom, the wisdom of God, is radically different from the wisdom of this age. There is a wisdom of the world that doesn't cast you upon Christ. Recognizing and embracing God's wisdom in the cross... It invalidates the wisdom of our age. Paul says, the place of wisdom is actually not the city of Corinth. It's the cross of Christ. Verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Notice that phrase, for our glory. This wisdom makes us beautiful. It's also an old wisdom. It was before the creation of the world. 
Notice the word decreed. It means planned in advance, ordained. Salvation was purchased by the Son, but it was planned by the Father. God's wisdom, his, his plan of redemption, predates time-bound human existence. That means this is the biggest secret of mankind. God formed this plan before there were any people. He predestined the plan, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When did he predestine this? Before the foundation of the world. This is talking about God's predestined plan for salvation and the predestined recipients of that salvation. He, he predestines the plan and he predestines the people. Now, FFC review time. The wisdom of God is narrowly Christ, broadly God's redemptive plan for mankind. The wisdom of God is narrowly Christ, broadly God's redemptive plan for mankind. Now let's flesh that out. God's wisdom is, is simply making himself known to us. God's wisdom is simply making himself known to us. If God's wisdom was hidden... If it was a secret, how could anyone ever find it? Well, it leads us to our first wisdom truth. Knowing God is not a matter of human discovery, but divine revelation. Knowing God is not a matter of human discovery, but divine revelation. Nobody figured God's plan out. No one looked into his actions and deduced it. God has to show his hand or we can't see it. There's no pathway for you to know God unless he took the initiative. When we talk about the knowability of God, we understand the only one wise enough to reveal God to you is God. We need God to tell us about God. Man cannot come to God on his own. God must come to him. The only way to know God personally is to be known by God personally. You may, have, you may have strong cognitive abilities to solve problems and to do solutions, but God's secret was not known by any other way than revelation. Now, did you notice that God's wisdom comes from God without cost? You can't pay a consultant for this wisdom. God freely gives it. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The best government and the highest religion of the day decided to put Jesus on a cross. The wisdom of the world despised this Christ. They despised the wisdom of God. They lived according to conventional wisdom, not supernatural wisdom. And church, you need to beware of any wisdom that belittles Jesus or belittles the teaching of his word. At the cross, two wisdoms and two rulers collided. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God collided. The rulers of the world and the ruler of the universe collided. They didn't crucify a messianic pretender. They killed the Lord of glory. 
The Lord of glory, the loftiest title ever applied to Christ. Verse 8 said, none of the rulers understood this. None of the rulers understood this. It's It's inaccessible to them. They can't comprehend it. Which leads us to our next wisdom truth. This human inability to understand God's redemption is a culpable inability. This human inability to understand God's redemption is a culpable inability. Now, I first heard this idea from a Canadian. You're thinking, oh, it's your wife, right? No, it's the D.A. Carson. I first heard it from him. Non-Christian, non-Christian, if you die and go to hell, it's all your fault. You can't blame God for not grasping the gospel or comprehending it. It's the text here, it's inaccessible to them, but they are accountable. And you say, Kyle, explain that to me. I don't have to make the two fit together perfectly. I just have to proclaim both. I need to tell you to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. You need to submit to his lordship because you will be without excuse in the end. Verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Notice, this is a quotation. It's difficult to notice, to know the source of this quotation. The origin is disputed. It's not from any one Old Testament text. Most likely, it's a, it's a paraphrase of several Old Testament texts. Possibly Isaiah 64.4 and 52.25 and 65.17, Daniel 2.19-23. But what is this verse referring to? No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This text is sometimes used in funerals and applied to heaven. But it's not about heaven. It's about now. It's not talking about what will be ours in the future, but what is ours right now. This is not a proof text for how awesome heaven is going to be. Paul doesn't use these words to refer to the glory of believers after death. But what was hidden in the past and is now revealed to believers, that's what this verse is referring to. This is referring to the incarnation of Christ. This is referencing the gospel, God's graceful condescension in Christ. We could have never imagined how beautiful this Christ is, how wonderful this redemption is. This verse says... What God has prepared. The glories that come to believers in salvation are not haphazard, but planned. Redemption was planned. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us. These things God has revealed to us. Now let's stop here and unpack this wisdom truth. The wisdom believers have is not discovered by them, but revealed to them. The wisdom believers have is not discovered by them, but revealed to them. Who does the revealing here? God. 
Paul tells us there's a distinction between things revealed by human processes and things revealed by divine processes. Now, man has extraordinary intellectual powers. Man has discovered gravity, DNA, antibiotics, and the components to create electricity. But knowledge, wisdom, is not limited to what is scientifically quantifiable. There is a knowledge, there is a wisdom that is spiritual. The Bible's honesty about human wisdom can rub some naturalists the wrong way. Paul draws, a, draws a, a heavy line between human things and divine things. True wisdom is not accessible by natural means. True wisdom is not accessible by natural means. It must be revealed by God. Paul's point is that the Old Testament foresees salvation through a crucified Messiah. And then it takes a special revelation by God to believe that. God's wisdom is not discovered by human beings, but revealed to them. The first contrast, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Now the second contrast, the spirit of the world versus the spirit of God. We learned wisdomology, now pneumatology. Pneumatology, the, the doctrine of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's one, of the, it's one of the major categories of systematic theology. Paul is laying out a systematic. He, he, he mentions the Holy Spirit six times in this section. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the shy spirit, the, the shy person of the Trinity. He's always shining the light on Christ and not himself. He's the quiet spirit. And sadly, he's the forgotten person of the Trinity in many churches like ours. We are so leery of Pentecostalism that we often ignore the Spirit. We act like the Trinity consists of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is a glorious gift of God that shouldn't be neglected in Reformed churches or expositional churches. The Holy Spirit has revealed to us such indescribable blessings that are ours in Christ. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Searches everything. This offers confirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is hidden from the Spirit of God. He holds the divine attribute of omniscience. The Spirit does indeed have complete knowledge of the depths of God. He's a reliable source of divine insight because He's divine. He searches the depths of God's purposes. God the Spirit teaches us. And this is important because what God thinks about God is infinitely more important than what you think about God. Which leads us to a spirit truth. The Spirit makes the Bible come alive to you. The Spirit makes the Bible come alive to you. Paul is describing the work of illumination. The Holy Spirit illumines the Scripture to you. He's the illuminator. R.C. Sproul says it like this. The Spirit searches 
Not because he does not know the mind of God, for the Holy Spirit is God, but in order to grant to us understanding that the Lord wants us to have. He's the agent who reveals truth to us. This does not mean that the Spirit gives you some special understanding that no one else sees in that text. This is not the basis for some fanciful allegory. It simply means he sticks the truth in your heart. He takes what is there and he makes it real to us. Have you ever had those times when you're reading the Bible and suddenly you're struck by a truth in the text that you've never noticed before? That's the Spirit's work of illumination. Perhaps you've heard a text exposited and then suddenly you know how it applies to you and how it should be worked out in your life. That's the Spirit's work of illumination. You have more than me. You have more than a human teacher. You have a divine teacher. Every church has the same ultimate teacher, the Holy Spirit. How is the wisdom mentioned earlier imparted from God to us? By the Spirit. Without the help of the Spirit, the gospel truths would seem alien to us. Martin Luther said, The Bible cannot be understood simply by study or talent. You must count only on the influence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Calvin asserts, These words, he's talking about the Bible, These words will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. Someone said, I can't remember who, I'm pretty sure it's from my home state of North Carolina. But someone said, the best man can do on his own is gnaw the bark of Scripture without getting to the wood. Trying to understand the Bible without the Spirit's illumination is like trying to hear FM frequency, but you're tuned into AM stations. As I just said that, I'm realizing... <laughs> 75% of you are like, what is, what is FM, AM? <laughs> I, I failed you there. But the Spirit will teach you. <laughs> we, we learned what true wisdom is. Now we learn how true wisdom is received. The reason you know is now explained. It's the Spirit. Which leads us to another Spirit truth. The Spirit makes you come alive. It doesn't just make the Bible come alive. It makes you come alive. If you understand the gospel, it's not because I was good at explaining it. It's because the Spirit opened your eyes to see it. If you want to know God, then you need the Spirit to reveal Him to you. It is the Spirit of God who convicts us of sin. The preacher does not change people. It is the Spirit who changes people. You take the most brilliant man who has ever lived and he is unable to understand the gospel on his own. The gospel is revealed by the Spirit through the Word. You need the anointing eye salve of the Holy Spirit to truly see. Preaching. Preaching without the Spirit's illumination is like walking up to a dead person 
and putting AirPods in his ear and then asking, you like that song? It's asking a blind man, hey, what do you think of my new shoes? You can't respond to God if you're spiritually dead or spiritually deaf or spiritually blind. On Sundays, I do not preach, nor, nor do any of the pastors here. I do not preach, nor do any of the pastors here preach like we can convince you by human effort. I can't make you live. I can scream, live! But you just leave saying, that guy yells a lot. <laughs> but when the Holy Spirit whispers, live, you start to see this Christ differently. It takes the breath of God to awaken men and women dead in their sins. Salvation must be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And so this precludes Attaining salvation by human goodness. Can't do that. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The spirit knows the inner workings of God like a man knows the inner workings of himself. Paul's comparing the work of a human spirit with the work of, a, of the divine spirit. Just as your spirit is privy to your own thoughts, the Holy Spirit, spirit is privy to God's thoughts. He comprehends. He fully understands. Only the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God and is able to reveal them. The Spirit knows God from the inside. Again, this is ascribing full deity to the Spirit. You can only know an individual by the extent that he or she is willing to be candid. God through the Spirit makes himself known to you. He's fully candid, open about his holiness and righteousness and character. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Let's stop there. Paul assumes all who believe in Christ have the Holy Spirit. You see that? Paul assumes all who believe in Christ have the Holy Spirit. The mark of being a Christian is the Spirit in one's life. Now verse 12 finishes. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Word, the word operates externally by our reading and hearing it. And the Spirit works internally by applying it. The Apostle Paul, the, the Apostle did not expect the Holy Spirit to work apart from the apostolic testimony. The Spirit works in and through the inscripturated words. Verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, there are four different conservative interpretations of this verse about what it means to interpret spiritual things with spiritual things. Tom Schreiner holds one. John Piper holds one. John MacArthur holds one. I'm not going to give them all to you. I'm just going to give you the correct one, <laughs> which is the position I take. Paul is talking about communicating spiritual truths to spiritual people. 
And this is what is happening here today. I'm giving spiritual truths. And spiritual people are feasting on them. And non-believers are saying, this is stupid. Which is what is in the next verse, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you see how vital the Spirit's ministry and teaching is? The natural man is the man without the Spirit. You were not born with the Spirit. There has to be a time when the Spirit comes to live in you. The Spirit is there to excite you of the glories of Christ. The Spirit is there to teach you of the laws of Christ. He does the the ministry of instruction. He gives you, as the verse says, understanding. The Apostle Paul knows of only two classes of people. The natural man and the spiritual man. Before his eyes, all other distinctions are extinguished. Jew-Gentile, slave-free, Male-female, circumcision-uncircumcision. Paul contrasts between a saved person called spiritual and an unsaved person in the text called natural. Now this brings up an important issue for Paul. I want you to listen to me. I can say it, only the Spirit can make it live. I, I, I I want you to understand the total inability to understand the Word of God Outside of the Spirit of God. The total inability to understand the Word of God outside of the Spirit of God. There is an absolute necessity of regeneration to properly understand the Bible. And this is why your neighbor thinks you are crazy for following Christ. This is why your college prof is way smarter than you. But he can't discern the Bible properly. This is why your commanding officer doesn't understand Christianity. He's a natural man. It's why you ladies go on play dates with other women and they don't understand why you raise your children the way you raise your children. It befuddles them because they are natural. Tom Schreiner is helpful here when he says, it is not that unbelievers cannot mentally grasp or comprehend the message of the gospel. They are unable to understand the truth and significance of the gospel because such things can be discerned only through the Spirit. End quote. With their limited earthbound faculties, the gospel whizzes right by them. It, it whizzes by those dependent on natural faculties. John Piper says that, that their basic problem is not the intellectual ability to construe the meaning of Paul's message. The problem is the moral ability to assign the right value to it. They are blind to its beauty and deaf to its harmony and unable to smell the sweet aroma. The natural man or woman cannot know God by intuition. They can't grasp the cross because it is elevated out of their reach. You can't educate an old nature into a new one. How many of you have dogs? Would you raise your hand? 
That's a shame. <laughs> you know how much I hate animals here. <laughs> you can educate a dog to fetch, but you can't educate a dog to become a man. You can educate a horse to run barrels, but you can't educate a horse to become a dolphin. That's a different creature. When someone becomes a Christian, they become a new creature. You can't educate an old nature into a new one. Only the Spirit can make a person new. And some of this, this is just, you're liking it, but then you're not sure if you like it or not. You're not sure if you like this. Because in your mind, we had a little part of us being Christians. A little bit of it depended on how smart I was. And I just saw some things that those other people did not see. And the Spirit says, stop. Verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. Now the spiritual person, that's the saved person. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. So let's look at those two phrases. Judges all things, judged by no one. A spiritual person judges all things. When they get the spirit at salvation, they begin to see everything differently. You don't need the wisdom of the world to understand the world, but you do need the wisdom of God to understand the world. With the spirit, they are able to assess everything. All believers who have the spirit can locate error. You don't need to call the elders to locate error. All believers who have the Spirit can locate error. The spiritual person is given insight by the Spirit through the Word. So they hold on to outlooks and practices that are far superior to what the wisdom of the world has to offer. The Spirit through the Word gives them the ability to see all things clearly and to judge all things rightly. One man said it like this, The Christian on his knees sees more than the philosopher on his tiptoes. A spiritual person judges all things, but then notice the next. A spiritual person is judged by no one. Now believers must be very cautious here. This is not saying that you are above criticism. It does not mean that you are above correction. If you say, well, I'm not going to submit to law enforcement. They can't judge me. <laughs> I'm not going to submit to the judge's ruling or my pagan philosopher's syllabus instructions. This does not mean that Christians cannot rightly be evaluated by others. Oh, well, we're not accountable to, to, to anyone. Outside of ourselves. That's not what the text is saying. It's saying that non-believers do not know what to make of believers. I think the NASB may have the best translation here. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. The natural man can't give believers wisdom and instruction about ultimate realities. They may help you organize your calendar or become a better writer or teach you to lead a team more efficiently, but they cannot instruct you on ultimate realities. 
they don't have the ability to rightly value the cross. A colorblind person can't teach you about the colors of the rainbow. A deaf person can't comment on the harmony of Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms. They observe all things, but, but they observe it with their natural eyes as opposed to spiritual eyes. Now, the Christian has lived in both worlds and can speak of both experiences. They operated in two realms. They can understand the non-believer, but the non-believer is only operating in one realm, and so they cannot understand the believer. You see, their values and worldview are radically stunted. And this is why biblical counseling is so important. This is why we are starting a biblical counseling center. You need a person with the spirit and the word to guide you through life. A person without the spirit cannot properly assess life or the world. They just can't. Now, some of you non-Christians, you may be offended by this. I am not trying to offend. But I am trying to say what God said. And this is what God says about you. You may think you have a grasp on life and that you understand all things perfectly. God says you don't. You're not as wise as you think you are. Now, Christian, Christian who's beat down at your job and beat down at your school, Christian, you are constantly being told by our culture you can't understand this world. You don't see it rightly because you're a Christian. The opposite is actually true. They don't understand the world. They can't. They are living in the city of wisdom, but they are blind to true wisdom. Verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Verse 16 gives us our second quotation. It's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 13. The mind of Christ is the outcome of this revelation. God has given you the spirit of God to help you understand the word of God that it might develop in you the mind of Christ. Christians don't have a superior intellectual mind. They just have the mind of Christ. The natural man the natural man is incapable of judging by his simple reason, the ways of God. This gives further support to the idea that non-believers do not know the mind of the Lord. He's a puzzle to the non-Christian. Now, church, I've given you some wisdom truths and some spirit truths. Now I want to leave you with four take-home applications. We can finally come back up for air. <laughs> that was a long breath. I want to bring this text to your front porch and I will do that with four applications. The first application. Christian, are you feeling alone? You are never alone. You have the spirit. Christian, are you feeling alone? You are never alone. You have the spirit. Single adults in our church, we have many of you. 
in the dark silence of night, you may feel alone. In the entering of this building, you may feel alone. You come by yourself. You sit by yourself. You don't know anyone here. But you are not alone. You are not alone like you think you are alone. You have the Spirit sitting with you in the service. He's your guide, better than a friend. He's your comforter. Now to those of you who have lost a spouse, to those of you whose spouse lost you, they left you alone. Friend, you have the Spirit who will never walk out on you. Some of you have a father who left you alone. You watched him leave to never come back again. Dear one, you have a heavenly father who did not leave you alone. He sent his spirit. Christian, are you feeling alone? You are never alone. You have the spirit. Second application. You labor with the spirit while evangelizing. You labor with the Spirit while evangelizing. While you're giving the gospel, pray that the Holy Spirit would open the blind eyes of the person to whom you're speaking. You can't open their eyes. You're like, you don't understand, I got a great argument, Kyle. (laughs) You can't open their eyes. But the Holy Spirit can use the Word of God to open their eyes. Stop depending on yourself. Depend on the Spirit. Wife, depend on the Spirit when talking to your unsaved husband. No person ever converts another person. And we need to get rid of that language in the church. No person ever converts another person. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Mom, Mom, evangelizing your children while your husband is away at work? Disciplining them and trying to turn that into a gospel moment? You wish your husband would be there, but he's working 80 hours this week? You are not alone in evangelizing your children. The Spirit is with you. Third application. Are you conscious of the Spirit's work during corporate worship? Are you conscious of the Spirit's work during corporate worship? Are you praying for the Spirit to make the text live? Are you praying for the Spirit to reveal your sin? How often do you do that? How often do you pray for the Spirit to eliminate distractions here so that you can focus on the Word? This isn't going to be a surprise to you, but you can grow a big church without the Holy Spirit. And that's something we all want to say, amen, because that's someone else somewhere else. You can grow a big church without the Holy Spirit, and you can attend a Christ-centered church with expositional preaching and Christ-honoring music and completely ignore the Spirit. 
In other words, without the sovereign, life-giving, blindness-removing, soul-illuminating, glory-revealing work of God's Spirit, everything that happens here is in vain. What goes on here, what goes on here is not natural. It's supernatural. Don't ever forget that. Fourth application. Jesus didn't save you by himself. The Trinity saved you. Jesus didn't save you by himself. The Trinity saved you. Every member of the Trinity was involved in your salvation. Every member of the Godhead is involved in the gospel. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, the Son cleanses. You've been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. I love the way one country preacher said it. <laughs> he said, it's the Father who thought it. It's the Spirit who wrought it. And it's the Son who bought it. Salvation comes to us only by way of the Trinity. And one day, it will bring us home to the Trinity. Our great God. Three in one and one in three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as God the Son is concerned, I was saved the moment he died for me on the cross. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one afternoon when I was 16 years old, throwing my hands up saying, I'm yours, Father. I repent of my sin. Have mercy on me. It took all three persons of the Godhead to bring us to salvation. What a holy God. Father, we have had the privilege to walk through your word with the aid of your spirit to reveal true wisdom to us. The spirit and the word have revealed Christ your wisdom. We glory in your son. For we have nothing else to glory in. We have nothing to bring to the table. We rest in the work of Christ alone. Amen.